Colossians chapter 4 is a great song to sing, not only as we're in the Christmas season, but as we wrap up the book of Colossians, Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's what we've talked about for the last 14 Sundays, and ultimately that's what we're talking about this morning. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. Colossians 1.18 says that he is preeminent. It's another way of saying he's supreme or he's first place. Over and over and over again in Colossians, Paul refers to Jesus as Lord. He describes Jesus as the Lord of creation. He is the creator. He describes Jesus as the Lord of redemption. He's the one who has accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for the salvation of his people. He is the Lord of the church. Not Paul, not any of the pastors in Colossae, nobody here that stands on this platform, but Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. As Lord, Jesus has the right to tell us how to live our lives. We've been talking about that in Colossians 3 and 4. For example, Jesus has the right to tell us what to think. Set your mind on these things, not those things. Jesus has the right to tell us how to live in terms of what we put on in our lives and what we put off. Not talking about clothing, but using the, the imagery of getting dressed to say put off sin and put on righteousness and obedience. Jesus has the right, as much as people don't like it today, to define the nature of our human relationships when it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to employer and employee relationships. Jesus gets to determine the parameters of all of those things because Jesus is Lord. So when you just sang that familiar Christmas carol and the words just rolled off your tongue, Christ the Lord, that's what you are saying. You're preeminent, you're supreme, you're first place. You're the creator, you're the savior, you're the Lord of the church. You have the right to tell me and everyone else how to live our lives. That's the big umbrella that covers everything that we've studied and everything we will study this morning in Colossians. Now, a couple of housekeeping things, just a few notes, so we don't have to chase these rabbits a little bit later when we work our way into this passage. Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, I've mentioned this to you in previous weeks, were sister cities, and they were located in a part of the world at the time called the Lycus River Valley. So I'll show you a map down at the bottom right, you can see there's Judea, Samaria, Galilee. That little green area is where Jesus spent the entirety of his life. If you look over at the top left, the big yellow shape, that's what we would call Greece. And at the top right, the big brown shape is what we would call Turkey. In Paul's day, this was the Roman province. You could use the word state, but the Roman province of Asia. And there was all sorts of cities, but three cities that went together were Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. This is sort of like Odessa and Midland, Dallas and Fort Worth. When you thought about one city, you think about the other city. When you thought about Colossae, you thought about these other cities that went along with it. Their industry was tied together. Their population was tied together. Three sister cities. They're mentioned in this passage. And one of the references is quite interesting. Colossians chapter four, verse 16, refers to a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Laodicea. 
We'll get to that in a moment when we read it. And I don't want to chase this rabbit very far because you have already looked at the backside of this outline and you said, what in the world is he doing with 11 sermon points? That's absolutely ridiculous. Christmas is coming. We only have a week. So we're going to be very, very brief here, and I'm just going to say this. Paul refers to this letter that he wrote to the church in Laodicea. Some Bible scholars think that that letter is the letter we call Ephesians, and there's a reason they think that. Some Bible scholars think that the letter to the church in Laodicea or to the Laodiceans is what we call Philemon. And there's some reason that they think that, although I don't think either of those is convincing. I think this is just an unknown letter. Meaning, in his life, Paul wrote lots of letters. He wasn't sending texts. He wasn't firing off emails. He wasn't FaceTiming anybody. He communicated with his friends and his coworkers and his churches through letters. That was the technology of the day. We know that he wrote other letters to the church in Corinth that are not in our Bible. And we know that he wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea that's not in our Bible. Now, some of you are on Christmas break. And you're going to get bored and you're going to turn on Discovery Channel or History Channel. And they might, over Christmas, while they're explaining away all the glory of Christmas, they might have a, a special that says, Lost Books of the Bible. And you might say, oh, that sounds fascinating. Just turn it off and go to a football game. There are no lost books of the Bible. There are no missing books of the Bible. Paul wrote a lot of letters. Some of them ended up in our New Testament. Some of them did not. The ones that ended up in our New Testament are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They belong in the New Testament. They belong in your Bible. You do not have any books missing that you need to consult Discovery Channel or History Channel to enlighten you on all these missing books of the Bible. We have exactly what we need in the scriptures. Now, our focus this morning is not going to be on the letter we don't have. It's going to be on the letter that we do have. And we're going to come to the end of Colossians in chapter 4. So here's the big idea of this final section of verses. The supremacy of Jesus. Remember, that covers everything in the book. Jesus is supreme. He's preeminent. He's first place. He's the Lord. The supremacy of Jesus compels us to the mission of making disciples of all nations. Us being Christians. People who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because he's supreme that we are compelled to the mission. And every Christian has a role to play in the mission of making disciples of all the nations. This is the exact same logic in Matthew 28, what we refer to as the Great Commission. Look what we read in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's another way of saying he's supreme. He's preeminent. He's first place. He's the Lord. He has all of the authority in heaven and on the earth. That's a lot of authority. It's more than you have and more than I have. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and this is the one command in the passage, make disciples. Jesus has the authority. Therefore, he sends his people to make disciples. What I want you to see is that's the logic of the entire book of Colossians when you come to this final section. We're about to read a long list of names, people that knew Paul, and a list that includes Paul. All of them are listed here because they were involved in the mission of making disciples. 
Why did they give their lives in different ways to make disciples of all the nations? Well, in the context of Colossians, the obvious answer is it's because Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's supreme. He's first place. He is the Lord of creation and redemption in the church. He has the right to tell us what, our, what to do with our lives. And if he tells us as his people to go make disciples, then that's exactly what we ought to do. So take your copy of the scriptures. Let's read the passage together. Colossians chapter four, verse seven to the end of the book. Scripture says this. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the book of Colossians and we thank you for these final verses. Lord, as we look at this long list of names, Some of them are familiar to us, some of them are not familiar, but Lord, we pray for insight as we think about their involvement in making disciples and recognizing the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we would better understand what is involved in the task of making disciples of all the nations. We pray that you would use us to that end. Don't just fill our heads with facts, but Father, use us as we see described in this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon with 11 points. I do intend to get done before lunch. So I'm going to skip any kind of story or introductory whatever, and we're going to jump right in. The question we're asking this morning is, what is involved in the task of making disciples of all the nations? There are 11 names that we're going to talk about. We are not going to say everything that we could say about each of these names, but we will say something, one something, about each of them. And we will start with Tychicus. Tychicus reminds us that encouragement strengthens the mission. Encouragement strengthens the mission. We meet Tychicus in verse 7. 
He is described as a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant. We know from the book of Acts that he lived in this Roman province of Asia. And every time you search his name up and read about him, Paul seems to be sending him somewhere. Paul's always sending Tychicus somewhere to do something. He sends him in the New Testament to Ephesus twice. He sends him to Crete where Titus was pastoring in a very difficult situation. He sent Tychicus there to help Titus in the mess that he was in in Crete. And he sends him here to Colossae. He sends him to do two things. Number one, to deliver news. Look, I'm sending Tychicus. When he gets there, he'll tell you all the stuff you need to know. He'll tell you what's happening with me, how I'm doing. I'm not going to write it down. Tychicus will be there, and he will tell you all the things that are happening with me. But he also says this about Tychicus, verse 8. He's sending him to encourage their hearts. To encourage their hearts. If you have ever lifted a spiritual finger to make disciples in your home or in our church or even around the world, you know that it's hard. It's hard work to make a disciple. It's very, very easy to get somebody to pray a prayer. It's much harder to make disciples. The Great Commission is not a call to get people to pray a prayer, but it's a call to make disciples. That's a slow work. You don't microwave disciples. It's a tedious work. It's a frustrating work. It is a discouraging work. And if you and I do not do what the book of Hebrews says, that is continue meeting together, encouraging one another, we're going to give up because it's a hard work. I promise you this. You look around the people sitting close to you, Think about the people that you passed in the hallway this morning as you went to Sunday school or came to worship. None of those people that you crossed paths with this morning, not a single one of them is currently suffering from over-encouragement. None of them. They might be suffering from people flattering them and telling them what they want to hear or like to hear. Odds are they're suffering from some sort of discouragement in life. It's why the New Testament says, encourage one another. Specifically in this context, as you think about the task of making disciples, is a hard, discouraging task. And Tychicus reminds us, we've got to encourage each other in the task of making disciples. Secondly, Onesimus reminds us that salvation is the heart of the mission. Salvation is the heart of the mission. I'm going to try not to get the names mixed up here, but I always get mixed up with Onesimus and Philemon. I've got wires crossed in my brain. I can't uncross them. So if I say something wrong, just smile at me and correct me later. Onesimus. We meet him here, verse 9. He's traveling with Tychicus. We really know about him from another book in the Bible, the book of Philemon. With this letter to the church in Colossae, Paul sent another letter, the letter of Philemon. There's a reason they're separated in your English New Testament, but I wish that they were together side by side because they go together. They're twin letters. Here's the story of Onesimus and Philemon. Onesimus was the slave of Philemon. Now, we talked about slavery in New Testament times a few weeks ago. We're not gonna rehash all of that. Odds are Onesimus had got himself into debt and he was working that debt off 
with Philemon. He didn't want to do it, so he ran away. He completely ditched his obligations to work off his debt, and he ran away, thinking that he would be free. But even when he was free from Philemon, Onesimus was still a slave to sin. We don't know the story of how this happened, but in the merciful providence of God, Onesimus ran away, and somehow he crossed paths with the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul shared the gospel with him. And he was convicted of his sin. And he repented of his sin. And he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he became a Christian. He was born again. Then Paul sent Onesimus back to face the music. You read about it in Philemon. He didn't send him back as a slave. He sent him back as a brother. Someone who had experienced God's grace and was now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing in the in the task of making disciples, is we want to see people saved, truly saved, not just pray a prayer saved, not just nod your head, raise your hand saved, but genuinely to the core of who you are saved by God's grace. You understand that the God of the Bible from beginning to end is a God who saves people. He's a God who saves people. He saves idolaters like Abraham. Murderers like Moses, adulterers like David, runaways like Jonah, cowards like Peter, liars like Zacchaeus, people who persecute the church like Saul of Tarsus. I look around at some of you And I say, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because you did something, it's because God saved you. In a few weeks, we'll baptize on a Sunday morning. There's a young girl who's gonna be baptized. She's been saved from her sins. And there's people in our church who were not saved as children, they were saved as adults, and their salvation is a remarkable, dramatic thing, not unlike the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus. But in either of those situations, the dramatic salvation story or the little child who comes to faith in Jesus is because God saves sinners. Some of you need to be saved. Bottom line. You've done a lot of church things, but you have never been genuinely born again. You have never truly agreed with God about your sin problem and put your faith and your hope and your trust and your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. This is what I'm telling you this morning. God can save you. God saves sinners. He saved Onesimus. And it's a reminder of what we're doing when we go out to make disciples. God still saves sinners. Thirdly, Aristarchus. Courage is required in the mission. Courage is required. Aristarchus, the New Testament says, was a Macedonian who lived in Thessalonica. That is, he was Greek. He lived in that big blob up on the top left, the yellow blob. Uh, A Macedonian from Thessalonica. Every time you read about Aristarchus, he's with Paul in a pickle. Paul's in a difficult spot, and you look up, and there's Aristarchus. 
Acts chapter 19, there's a mob in Ephesus and they are literally beating Christians in the streets of Ephesus. Paul's there and guess who else is there? Aristarchus. He's there. He's not running away. He's right there in the middle of it. Paul's a prisoner on a Roman boat headed for Rome. Guess who joins him mid-trip? Aristarchus. He had no business being on that boat. Most Bible scholars and most historians say the only way he would have got on that boat in the first place is if he said to the, the captain of the ship, I am Paul's slave. So he probably says to the captain, I'm Paul's slave. They let him on the boat, and he goes on this journey that ends up getting shipwrecked on the way to Rome. He's right there with Paul. He's with him here in this passage, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. He's a fellow prisoner. Signing up to go with Paul on that boat meant that he became a prisoner just like the apostle Paul. He's a man with steel in his spine. He's not the kind of guy that goes running when trouble shows up. And I would just make the very quick observation that in the year 2021 and most likely 2022 and going forward, in our postmodern culture, in our pluralistic society, in our world where anything and everything gets protested, if you're gonna follow Jesus and make disciples, you're gonna have to have some courage. It is not gonna get any easier. It's gonna get harder. You're going to need people like Aristarchus around, men with steel in their spine, women with steel in their spine, who will not shrink back from following Jesus and will not give up on this mission of making disciples. Fourthly, Mark. Mark reminds us that reconciliation advances the mission. Verse 10, Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. We meet these guys in the book of Acts in the very first mission trip. You remember that story if you've read the book of Acts. The church at Antioch got together. They were praying. They were worshiping. The Holy Spirit worked in their lives. They set apart Paul, who was then called Saul, and Barnabas to go out on the very first missionary trip. They took with them a young man, Barnabas's cousin, named Mark. And off they went on the very first mission trip. And about halfway through the trip, Mark quit. He went home. He didn't finish his obligation to Paul and Barnabas. He just quit in the middle of it and he went home. And it really made Paul mad. Paul thought, this guy is useless. So much so that after the first missionary trip, when they got ready to go on the second missionary trip, Paul and Barnabas put their heads together, and Barnabas, being the encourager that he was, said, hey, let's give Mark another shot. He wants to come. And Paul said what? No way. I'm not taking a quitter. He is not coming with me. And they split up over the issue. The relationship was broken. Does that ever happen in churches? relationships get broken? If you've been in church for all of about three minutes, you know that it does. It's because we're sinful people, and it doesn't take much. Somebody looks at you the wrong way in the hallway, why did they look at me that way? Do they not know I'm under-encouraged? 
Why would they do that? Somebody says something, you read something on social media, your pastor says something you don't like, Jake or Jake or Tyler or whoever is leading worship picks a song that you think is lousy. I mean, people get their feelings hurt in church all the time. Relationships get broken. And broken relationships on a human level do nothing to advance the mission of making disciples. In fact, they bring it to a grinding halt. So we can find ourselves in a church where we know relationships are going to be broken and we can just sit around and be bitter at each other or we can pursue reconciliation, which is probably what we ought to do. Being that almighty God in his grace has reconciled us to himself, we ought to seek to be reconciled with each other. That happened between Paul and Mark because what does he say to the church in Colossae? Does he say, if Mark comes... Run him out of town because he's a no good, cowardly quitter. He says, if Mark comes, you need to receive him. He says, you've received instructions about this. I know what his reputation is, but we've dealt with that, and you need to receive him. Do you know what Paul said at the end of his life? I mean the very, very end. 2 Timothy 4. Paul sent a letter to Timothy. One of the very last things the Apostle Paul said to Timothy is, please send Mark. Do you know why Paul wanted Mark to come to him in Rome? He tells Timothy, he says, please send Mark. He is useful to me. He's not useless. There was reconciliation in that broken relationship Paul says, if he comes, you receive him. And at the end of his life, he says, he is useful to me. If we are going to be serious about the mission of making disciples, we cannot let broken relationships, which will happen, hurt feelings, which will happen, stop us from the task that Jesus has given us. Now, number five, I think my favorite in the list. Jesus, who they called justice, reminds us that unrecognized servants are part of the mission. Let me tell you everything that we know about this man. Verse 11, Jesus, who is called justice. That's it. He was a Jew. He was one of only a handful of Jews working with Paul at the time. His name was Jesus, More than likely, they looked around and said, we have one of those, we're going to call you Justice, just to avoid any confusion. So they called this guy Justice. That's all we know about him. I mean, I'd like to know if he ever preached a sermon. Was it a good sermon or was it a flop? Did he teach Sunday school? Was he ever a deacon at a church? Did he share the gospel with people a lot? Was he like a great planner, organizer? We have no idea. He just pops into the story. He's involved, and he's there. Jesus called justice. He's an unrecognized servant. They're important. One of the things we do when we send a team to Kenya, we always take a picture out in front of the bus. Right? If you don't take a picture, it's like a jinx on the whole trip. So we take a picture out in front of the bus. We stand there. We post it, we ask you to pray, and you see all the people who are going. Do you know who you don't see? You don't see the people who stayed and worked and gave sacrificially so the people in that picture could go on that mission trip. 
We don't post their picture on Facebook. We're probably not going to start doing that. They're unrecognized servants. We need those people. You need people to go. You need people to give. You need both. When we do vacation Bible school, I don't know what our theme is going to be this next year, but if history holds, me and Corey and Jake Graves will be up on this stage dressed in some sort of dopey costume, getting the kids excited and playing games, and you'll walk in and you'll see us. You'll see Miss Jennifer, you'll see Miss Heather because they're leading the children in the preschool. You know who you probably won't see? Richard Triplett handing out cookies to kids out at recreation. You won't see him. But he'll be there and somebody's got to do that. On a Sunday morning, you come and listen to me. We sing some songs together. You see the people who are up here. You don't see the people who showed up early and sit up in the sound booth. They're up there. And if they're not up there, then we sound really bad. You don't see Miss Jerry and Miss Pat playing with preschool kids and rocking babies. When they're not here, like next week when we have no child care, you'll know they're not here. You'll hear proof. Miss Jerry's not back there this morning. Miss Pat's not back there. Well, when they do their job, you don't see them. You don't think about it. You weren't here this week when Cody was cleaning the toilets. Somebody had to do that. That's an unrecognized servant. In the body of Christ, you need pinky toes. You may think you can get by without them, but when you don't have one, you realize, oh, I need that. I need that pinky toe. I miss it. When it comes to the task of making disciples, you need people like Paul who are up front and center and you need a thousand people behind them who don't get any recognition or credit. And if you don't have both, it doesn't work. Unrecognized servants, part of the mission. Six, Epaphras, prayer is essential to the mission. It's essential. Verse 12 says, Epaphras is one of you. That is, he's from Colossae. He's called a servant of Christ Jesus. We actually met him in Colossians chapter one, verse seven. It seems that when you tie those two verses together, Epaphras heard the gospel from the apostle Paul when he was in Ephesus. Remember, Paul never went to Colossae. He spent a long time in Ephesus. So Epaphras crosses paths with Paul, he hears the gospel, and then he takes it back to his home, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Probably he was the founding pastor of the churches in those communities. Think like a Methodist circuit rider back in the day. He starts these three churches and he just kind of goes between these cities and he's pastoring these people. The text says he is working hard for you. But do you know what else the text says about Epaphras? Look at verse 12. He is always struggling in prayer. He's always struggling in prayer. I read that in verse 12. I thought about our friend, First Peter, in Kenya. He's the oldest of the pastors that we work with. There are two Peters. So the older Peter is First Peter, and the younger Peter is Second Peter. And when you talk to First Peter, or when you message him, some of you have never gone to Kenya or met him, but you message these guys on uh, on the internet. When you talk to him in person, when you message him from around the world, one of the things he always says is, I am busy praying for you. Hey, we need it. 
We need it. If we're going to make disciples, we need people who will be busy praying for us at Emmanuel Baptist Church. If First Peter's church is going to make disciples in Kenya, we had better be busy praying for him. Do you know why we need to be busy praying for each other? Do you know why we need to always be struggling for each other? It's because spiritual growth, that's what Epaphras is praying for, verse 12, he's praying for the, the steadfastness and the maturity of these churches. Spiritual growth is something that I cannot manufacture in your life. I have zero ability to make you grow spiritually. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, we came and we planted the gospel. And Apollos came and he watered the gospel. Ultimately, God is the one who gives growth. Not me. Not our worship leader. Not your Sunday school teacher. God is the one who gives growth. That's why we pray. It's because we've been given a task that we cannot do on our own. So we look to God and say, God... If you're going to use us to make disciples in Odessa, Texas, and around the world in Kenya and everywhere in between, you're going to have to give the growth. We'll work, we'll go, we'll give, we'll preach, we'll share, we'll teach, but you will have to give the growth. They're praying. Number seven, Luke reminds us that the scriptures are the foundation of the, min, uh, of the mission. We meet Luke in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. This is Paul's missionary traveling companion for the majority of his missionary trips. This is the Luke who was the last friend who stayed with Paul at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4. Everyone else had left him, only Luke was with him. It's the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Two books of the New Testament. But did you know, if you add those two books together and you add up all the words, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament, over a fourth. If you take Paul's letters and you add them all up together, word-wise, Paul added 23%. Together, these two men wrote half of the New Testament. We don't have all of their writings, but we have the writings that were inspired by God that are inerrant in content. They are sufficient. They are authoritative. They are powerful, cutting to the division of bone and marrow, spirit and soul. We have these books in the New Testament that talk to us about God's holiness, that talk to us about our sinfulness, that talk to us about who Jesus is and what he's done to save us from our sins that call us to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus and that then call us to go out on mission to make disciples. Half of the New Testament from these men. It's the foundation of what we do. Number eight, a sad note, Demas. Demas reminds us that endurance is the call of those who engage in the mission. Verse 14, he's just mentioned, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you and Demas. When this book was written, Demas was working with Paul. By the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, 
Demas has deserted me because he was in love with this present world. He loved this world and the things of this world and the comfort of this world and the approval of this world more than the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there was a time when it looked like Jesus was supreme in Demas' life, but he didn't endure. He went on mission trips, shared the gospel, helped Paul, but he didn't endure. I don't care how many trips you take to Kenya. I don't care how much money you put in the offering box. I don't care how many cookies you hand out at VBS. I don't care what you do and how often you do it for this church or any other church. If you do not endure as a follower of Jesus to the end, it means nothing. Nothing. Jesus warned about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, on the last day, there will be many, that's Jesus' word, many, who stand before Jesus, the Lord, and they're going to start listing off all the things they did for him. I think that's Demas. I went on mission trips. I helped Paul. I did this. I did that. And what will Jesus say to those people on the last day? He will say, depart from me, workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Not I knew you for a while when you were doing all that stuff, but then I kind of forgot about you once you abandoned, once you jumped ship. But I never knew you. Busyness in spiritual activity is no substitute for knowing Jesus Christ. And doing a lot of churchy things for Jesus is no substitute for knowing him and enduring to the end. The mission is important. But don't think for a second just because you give to a world missions offering that you as a follower of Jesus don't have to endure to the end. Demas is a warning of that. Number nine, Nympha reminds us that the church is central to the mission. If you have a King James or a New King James Bible... It probably talks in this verse about nymphus and refers to nymphus as a hymn. If you have just about any other English translation, it talks about nympha and refers to her as a her. There's a little bit of scholarly debate about whether this is a male name or a female name. It's probably one of those names we have them in English that could be used either way. I think the most obvious textual evidence is that this is a female. What really matters is not was this person male or female, but what did this person do with their home? They opened it to the church. This is a brand new baby church. This is not thousands and thousands of people. They don't have a big giant building. They don't have a building like ours or anything remotely close to it. We're talking about a few dozen people at the most and they need a place to gather together and Nympha allows the church to meet in her home. This is the church meeting. The church is the mission. The mission is given to the church Going out and making disciples means adding those people to the church. It doesn't mean just getting them to pray a prayer and then they're off and we don't know what happens to them, but it's building the church. Jesus died for the church. He purchased the church with his blood. 
the New Testament says. The church is the center of redemptive activity, and we're reminded of that here with Nympha. Number 10, Archippus. We get to participate in the mission as opposed to we have to. You don't have to. You get to. Your mother taught you the difference. Verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. What was his ministry? We have absolutely no clue. What we know is that he received it from the Lord. That word received has the idea of getting a gift. Some of you hope to get a gift this week. When you see a gift under the tree with your name on it, and it's Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, morning whenever you open presents, there's a gift, a big box with a bow and your name's on it. You don't look at that gift and say, oh, do I have to open it? Seems like an awful lot of work. I'm really comfortable. Feet are propped up. I just, oh, do I have to? But you receive it. You get to open it. It's not that you have to open a gift. You get to open a gift. Nympha, excuse me, Archippus, received this ministry as a gift. It was something he got to do. Now Paul says, see to it that you fulfill it. But this isn't a have to, it's a get to. When we talk about the world missions offering, your mindset should not be, oh, I guess I ought to give to that. He talks about it every year. I thought he was gonna stop. He's still talking about it. I guess I have to. But that's God's people saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's an opportunity for me to give so that people can be sent around the world to people who have never heard that Jesus Christ is Lord. I get to be involved in that. Where do I give? Our gifts may not be the same size, but your mindset ought to be, I get to be involved in that. Wait a minute, you're telling me that I get to leave this place after we worship together and I get to represent Jesus to the people in my family, in my workplace, in my school, in my community? I have the privilege, not only of knowing Jesus, but of representing him to people who don't? That's a get to, not a have to. Lastly, Paul. Suffering will be part of the mission. Verse 18, Paul says, I write this with my own hand. Usually what Paul did is he dictated these letters to a scribe called an amanuensis and they would write it down and Paul would come to the very end and then he would write the last line or two or three or however many himself and he would sign it as a note of authenticity. So he says, I write this with my own hand. Verse 18, remember my chains. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he is not fishing for pity. He does not want these people to feel sorry for him. In fact, if you've read the book of Colossians, you know that back in chapter 1, Paul actually says, I rejoice in my sufferings because in my suffering, God is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction." It's not that Jesus' death on the cross is lacking any kind of power to save. It's just that some people haven't heard that. They haven't heard the good news. And Paul looked at his life and he said, when I suffer, God seems to use that in a unique, remarkable way 
as a bridge to connect people with the, the affliction of Jesus and the knowledge that they need to have to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. The mission is often advanced through suffering. And Paul just includes this note here at the end. Remember my chains, a reminder that not only are all of us called to the mission of making disciples, but all of us can expect to suffer in this life. And in our suffering, we have confidence that God is at work for our good, for his glory, and for the furtherance of the mission. Now here's the big takeaway. This morning and in Colossians, none of the people that we talked about, none of those 11, none of them are the hero. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of creation. He's Lord of redemption. He's Lord of the church. He's preeminent. He's supreme. He's first place. My prayer for you and my prayer for us as we've come all the way through the book of Colossians and we've come to the end is that you recognize the absolute unrivaled supremacy of Jesus. He can save sinners and only he can do it. And when he saves you, not only does he give you life, but he then directs your life because he's the Lord. My prayer for you is that you know the truth that we sang earlier in the Christmas song, that in Bethlehem, Christ the Lord was born. I pray you know what Paul talked about in Colossians 2, that Christ the Lord was crucified on a cross with your record of debt nailed to that cross. I pray you know what Paul described in chapters 1 and 2, that Christ the Lord has defeated sin and death and risen from the dead, and he is enthroned in heaven even now as Lord. Let's pray together.